Good morning. Here we are back in our study of Matthew's Gospel. Very excited about this part. Matthew chapter 26 is quite long, and we're working our way down in there. We'll be starting right around verse 57 today. Um, this morning we're going to look at the trials of Jesus. We're going to begin looking at them, which is one of the um, most remarkable stories, the, uh, the abuse of justice that went on to kill a completely innocent man. But uh, in its depths, it's really the sin of man murdering God. That's really what's going on here. Jesus' trials are fascinating. They're often neglected, uh, a neglected part of the passion story in terms of some of the uh, undercurrents that uh, we know about. Um, but they are really important because, for one thing, they reveal the depravity of man. They tell us so much about the Lord himself, his patience, his uh, gentle character. And there's a, a comfort here for every godly person, man or woman, everywhere and at all times, who have been denied justice or the dignity of being treated as one who deserves justice. So we can draw strength from the experience that Jesus had in the legal system, both of Judaism in the first century and Rome. Jesus knows exactly the experience of being a victim, the victim of an abuse of power, of lying witnesses, of intimidation and violence. He knows all about that. And here we are 2,000 years later, and his experience encourages us who are similarly oppressed. Now, I'm not oppressed, but Christians all over the world are. It's a brutal thing. And when they read these stories, they know that Christ endured those very things, and they can draw comfort from this. I remember reading about Armando Valadares, who was uh, years ago. He spent 22 years in a notorious Cuban prison as a political prisoner. And in his memoirs, he wrote about the many late-night executions that he couldn't see because he was in a cell, but he could hear them going on outside. And often those being led to the firing squad were executed for religious crimes, mostly meeting in unapproved house churches or some underground kind of a thing because the state did not approve, obviously, of Christianity. It was a communist government. And Valadares said he could hear prisoners being marched out into the yard and then he would hear the doomed men shout out, Viva Cristo Rey, which means long live Christ the King. And then he'd hear the smattering of gunshots as they were executed. These men knew that Jesus lived still and that he stood with them in their hour of trial and that he understood what they were going through because he experienced something like it himself. So Jesus does see injustice. And he knows what it is from the perspective of the one who had to endure it. And no man, no person on earth can quite know what it was like for him because he was completely innocent. I mean, not just of what he was accused of, he was innocent of everything. It's terrible to be falsely accused. I mean, it's very terrible, but it does happen. But, you know, if it happens to us, we can probably remember something we've done. And, and maybe we think, well, there's cosmic justice. I never did get punished for that, and it's coming around to me. Jesus would have never had a thought like that because he was completely pure and innocent. So he's, it's truly um, an oppression against the innocent. He's innocent in every single way. Well, last time we found him in a garden being kissed by a disciple as he is betrayed, and he's bound with rope or leather thongs, 
and led in the early morning hours through a very quick succession of trials. And Jesus faced six stages of being tried in less than 12 hours. There were two main spheres of this. One was the Jewish ecclesiastical system and then the Roman legal system. And the whole affair involves many individuals, each acting from motives that were less than pure. So this morning I want to look at the Jewish trials, and next week we'll look at the Roman trials, and there we'll meet Pontius Pilate. But first I want to start with the Jewish trials, and we'll, we'll, we're going to look at John chapter 18 to start off today. So from the Garden of Gethsemane, um, Jesus was first taken to a kind of a preliminary hearing before Anas. And uh, we're going to pick it up at verse 12 of, of John chapter 18. It says, so the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, this is quite fascinating, and it shows how influential this man Annas was, uh, because he's going to be the first to interrogate Jesus. So they're bringing them to him. The high priest is Caiaphas. He had been um, the high priest since A.D. 18, so that's like 15 years. And Annas had been the high priest from A.D. 6 through 15. So he's an older gentleman, and Caiaphas married his daughter, so there's a political and personal connection between those two men. And as the former high priest, John still calls um, Annas the high priest in verse 19 of chapter 18. So much as we would... Uh, still say President Bush, even though he's been out of office for a long time, for example. Now remember, it's the middle of the night, sometime in the very early hours after midnight, and Jesus has been in the temple every day, the week before, um, available for questions and dialogue if they wanted. But Anas begins asking Jesus, well, apparently general sort of theological questions and organizational questions in terms of his relationship with his disciples. So verse 19, it says, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. That doesn't sound particularly threatening. Um, Jesus seems to find the line of questioning unproductive, and he reminds Anas uh, of a principle in Jewish legal practice against having the accused incriminate himself. We think that's a modern idea, but that was a Jewish idea in ancient times. So it says, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Verse 21, question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. So his teaching is public. That's why he's, so he's saying, why are you asking about that? There's all kinds of witnesses to everything. And he's probably looking around the room there. Some of these officers, uh, these guys know what I said. They've been following me around. Well, one of the officers didn't find Jesus sufficiently humble or groveling, uh, at least not to his satisfaction. So verse 22 says, when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? So he punches him. Now, a lot of us might lose our temper getting punched out of the blue like that in a, in a trial situation. In fact, the very same thing exactly happened to the Apostle Paul um, in Acts chapter 23, verse 3. And he did lose his temper. But Jesus doesn't, because Jesus is perfect. And what Jesus does is something we should all learn to do. I'd love to do a whole sermon just on Jesus' questions, because Jesus doesn't retaliate or respond 
uh, with anger or meanness or anything like that. He very quietly and directly asks this brute, this officer who punched him, to think about what he just did. So verse 23, he says, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? He's just taking this sin and laying it to him. Not accusing him, just asking the question, why are you doing that? That's a really handy way to handle difficult situations, to ask people. I call them Jesus questions because it's, it's a tendency that he has, and it's really helpful to diffuse something, but also to help somebody think about their own behavior for themselves, not just agitating them or striking back, but getting them to think. So it's a great question. So if I did rightly, why did you strike me? Yeah, why? Why indeed? So Jesus does just what we should all learn to do. Um, so Jesus obviously isn't going to be easy to rattle or intimidate or get caught in any kind of verbal traps. So verse 24, Anas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Anas used to be the high priest. Caiaphas is the current high priest. Anas has such a reputation and so much um, uh, influence that Jesus was actually brought to him first. But after this goes on, he sends him off to Caiaphas. So now Jesus is entering the official legal system of Israel. And he's taken, while it's still night, to Caiaphas's house. Now Luke 22:54 tells us that. So he's not before the general meeting place of the Sanhedrin where they usually gather together in, in the, their place designed for them. He's at the high priest's home. But a number of people from the Sanhedrin are there. Um, now, that's the highest court in the land, the Sanhedrin, the Great Council. It's probably not a full session at this particular hour and at this location. And that is where Matthew begins his account. So we can look at Matthew 26, verse 57, where it says, Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. So this is where the power lies within Israel, except for those areas claimed by Rome. But generally, Rome preferred to let local people solve local problems themselves, and that was certainly the case in the Holy Land. Rome did not want to be bothered with religious squabbles amongst the Jews, as they would have thought of it. Um, they only really had imperial interests at heart, so major things, political things, uh, serious crimes, that's what they were interested in. But religious stuff, they let the locals handle it. So Jesus is standing before a religious court that is governed by the law of Moses and the traditions that they developed in their judicial system. And this is the highest level of the judicial system. So the Sanhedrin has some uh, civil and legislative powers as well under Rome. So this is called the Sanhedrin, the Great Council. It's consisted of three chambers. There was a chamber of priests, there was a chamber of scribes, and the chain chamber of the elders, and each chamber had 23 men, so that would make 69 men altogether, and then there were two presiding officers that kind of run things, and so that made 71 men all told. One Hebrew writer described them this way, the priests and scribes naturally predominated in the Sanhedrin because not having, like other Israelites, received lands to cultivate and improve, they had abundant time to consecrate to the study of law and justice, and thus became better qualified to act as judges. In other words, the Pharisees and people like that had real jobs, so they were out. They they would come as they could, but um, you know they had to oversee their own lands and things like that. But the priests 
of course, they lived off the tithes of the people, so they didn't have exterior things like that to take care of. So now, let me get into Jewish law a little bit. Jewish jurisprudence was typically very enlightened, even by modern standards. It really presumed innocence, even more so than our legal system does. The council's job was to find a good reason to acquit the accused. That's how they were thinking. They would really be on the side of the accused. That's how it was supposed to work. The rule was, and this is how they said it, the Sanhedrin existed to save, not destroy life. That was their stated purpose. So it was their mission, really, to let people go if it was at all possible. You had to really prove guilt in these kinds of situations. And that's why verse 59 is pretty shocking, actually. Now, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. That's the exact opposite of the principles of their justice system. They were not to seek testimony against somebody or try to manipulate it to get somebody killed. It's exactly the opposite of what they were supposed to be doing. So in defiance of all that they claim to believe about justice, these men are looking for ways to put Jesus to death. They're hunting for anything that will give them grounds for execution. So they made themselves prosecutors, not judges. That's what hate does to justice. It perverts it. So in Jewish trials, there, there are only three parties. There's not a prosecutor, and there's not a defense attorney. There's the accused, that would be Jesus here. There are witnesses, and there are judges. And in their system, at least three judges. So not everything would depend on the wisdom of one man. There's no lawyers. There's no prosecutors. So only witnesses can bring charges. They're the ones who actually bring the charges. This guy did this. We saw this. We heard this. And witnesses have a very high standard they have to meet for their testimony to have any weight. So here are some of the rules for witnesses, especially key ones related to the story of Jesus. They have to have seen and heard everything. So you know how our system works. We'll take little bits from this guy saw and little bits from that guy saw and this person and that person. And we kind of and a, and a prosecutor builds a case with all of these parts and maybe some physical things and uh, DNA and all that kind of stuff. So they, they compile a case. Uh, but the Jewish system would not accept partial witnesses. You had to pretty much see everything, everything substantive anyway. So a witness had to see the complete act or his witness was rejected. They wouldn't take it. Witnesses had to agree. So it took two or more witnesses to convict somebody, and the witnesses had to agree about every substantive part of it. If one witness did not agree with another witness, they threw the whole thing out, their whole entire testimony out. Now, in our system, we kind of weigh, you know, well, how credible does this guy seem? And does that seem like it's probable that he knew that or whatever? They didn't do it that way. If they disagreed, both of their testimonies were thrown out. That's how it was done. Again, way on the side of the accused, far more than our system is today. So the issue of witnesses gave the Sanhedrin, with their wicked purposes, some pretty serious problems. Uh, look at verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, verse 60 says, even though many witnesses came forward. So let's just stop there for a second. All kinds of these false witnesses were marched in. But Matthew doesn't even bother to tell us 
what they said because they had nothing substantive to offer or they contradicted each other. So there was nothing useful there at all. It's Mark's gospel that plainly states that in Mark 14, verse 56. He says, many were giving false testimony against him, and yet their testimony was not consistent. See, there's that rule. If the, if the witnesses disagree, all of their testimony gets thrown out. So again, super important. Um, we weigh contradictions in testimony. They were supposed to throw it out. And that's basically what was happening. They weren't getting what they wanted. The most serious accusation then starts to come forward, picking up kind of in the middle of Matthew 26, verse 60. Later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, you might remember that from John's gospel when Jesus said that. That was kind of a loose paraphrase of what Jesus actually said. He didn't say that. In fact, it's very loose, inaccurately loose. But Mark helps, Mark helps us with even more detail in Mark chapter 14, verse 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Now, Jesus didn't say that. In fact, John's gospel says that Jesus said, um, he, it says he was talking about the temple of his body. So he didn't say anything about building a temple made with hands and rebuilding Herod's gigantic temple that took 40 years to build. He didn't, he did not say that. So, and then it says in Mark 14, 59, and not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. So these two guys come forward, they've got this story, but when they, the judges start asking questions, it, it's inconsistent what they're saying, which obvious because they're lying. So, um, both those have to be thrown out too. So that's, that's really the, the primary charge. And by the normal course of Jewish Justice, the charges should have been thrown out based on this contradictory testimony. But instead, the high priest steps into the role, not of a judge, but of a prosecutor. And he starts pushing and pressing Jesus. Verse 62. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. I suspect that Jesus' silence kind of came with a look, a facial expression that says, you know this is illegal, right? When the, when the high priest starts pressing him for this, because he's not allowed to do that. Caiaphas, I think, starts to panic and tries to force a confession out of Jesus because the case for blasphemy can be built at this point only on Jesus himself. Um, but even that pressure from, from a, uh, the priest who's supposed to be a judge is illegal. It's not legal. Why illegal? Because they don't have prosecutors. He's not a prosecutor. So only witnesses can bring a charge, not the judge. And the counsel cannot instigate charges. They can only investigate charges brought by witnesses. And these witnesses were contradictory. So Caiaphas is way out of bounds um, approaching Jesus like this and pressing him on this. A witness cannot be asked to incriminate himself. That was another rule they had. So um, just like our Fifth Amendment. So now pay attention. Everything they've done so far is wrong. Uh, contrary to their laws. Even having a, a trial at night is illegal. They're not supposed to do that. It's supposed to be Everything's supposed to be in the light of day. And even with all of their conniving and kind of 
twisting things and getting false witnesses to come and bear false testimony against Jesus, they still don't have anything to convict him on. So it all is coming up to, par up, up to pieces, you know, it's falling apart. So some of these guys on the Sanhedrin would have been interested in justice, so they would have seen what's going on. So Caiaphas needs a confession. He needs Jesus to admit to blasphemy. They don't have a right to ask for it, but that's what he needs to get a conviction. So at this point, only a confession will give them enough established guilt to take Jesus before Pontius Pilate with any hope of success. So the witnesses have failed. Jesus' fate, then, is entirely in his hands. They need his cooperation to convict him. And up until now, he's been silent. So what does he do? He gives them exactly what they wanted. He waits until they ask him, ask him in the name of the living God, and by that name, he tells them the truth. The high priest said to him, I assure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. So Caiaphas is leaving the temple question behind because that wasn't going anywhere. This is what they need from him. Are you claiming to be the Christ? And, and more specific than that, the Son of God. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You've said it yourself was a common Jewish way of saying yes, uh, agreeing with that. Mark, who isn't writing to a Jewish audience like Matthew is, quotes Jesus or translates Jesus' answer with these words. Jesus said, I am. Ego me again. I am the Son of God. So he's telling them that one day they're going to see him in judgment and glory as the judge of all mankind. Son of man is a messianic title from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Sitting at the right hand of power is from Psalm 110, one of the most dynamic messianic psalms in the Old Testament. Coming on the clouds of heaven goes back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 again. Now, these are all learned men, so they all know these texts well. Caiaphas is overjoyed, but he feigns shock, like, oh my. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. So he tears the seams of his robe, which is what pious Jews would do to express horror, especially at something against God like that. Um, so he says, forget the witnesses. He admitted it. So they have their way. Jesus, claiming to be the Messiah, the King of Israel, and the overlord of the whole world, that will invite Roman interests, Roman punishment. But let's talk about this blasphemy charge for a minute here on the Jewish side, because that's what they need to convict him, but they've got to get the Romans interested in him as a, a, a revolutionary or somebody against Caesar. So how did Jesus blaspheme exactly? Well, down through the years, several Jewish scholars have argued that the New Testament has this all wrong. Uh, Jesus wasn't guilty of blasphemy because he only said good things about God. He didn't blaspheme God. Saying, I am a son of God, they would say, is the right of every Jew. I am a son of God. 
So that's kind of an interesting argument against the New Testament. They also say Jesus would have been measured by Leviticus chapter 24, verse 15 through 16, which says, if anyone curses God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall he be put to death. So these scholars say Jesus never did that. So it doesn't make sense that he would be convicted of blasphemy. Are they right about that? How could Jesus be guilty of blasphemy from the Sanhedrin's point of view? He certainly never blasphemed God. That's true. He never said anything against God or anything like that. But he wasn't asked if he was a son of God. Caiaphas asked him if he is the Christ, the son of the living God. So, listen, if you tell me you're a child of God, I'm going to say, that's really great. That's wonderful. Me too. But if you tell me you are the son of God, the son of the living God, um, I'm going to social distance extreme from you. And I'm going to call the people with the big nets because you're saying something totally different than saying I'm a child of God. So he asked him if he was the son of the living God. And Jesus said he was. I am. Now, another Jewish scholar, uh, Joseph Salvador is his name. He's a Jewish legal historian. He says Jesus did not violate Leviticus 24, um, but he would have been seen to violate Deuteronomy chapter 13. That's another form of blasphemy. So he says this. I'm just going to quote him. He says, Jesus, in presenting new theories and in giving new forms to those already promulgated, speaks of himself as God. His disciples repeat it. And the subsequent events prove in the most satisfactory manner that they thus understood him. This was shocking blasphemy in the eyes of the citizens. The law commands them to follow Jehovah alone, the only true God, not to believe in gods of flesh and bones resembling men and women, neither to spare or listen to a prophet who, even doing miracles, should proclaim a new God, a God neither they nor their fathers had known. The question already raised among the people was this, has Jesus become God? But the Senate, having adjudged that Jesus, son of Joseph, born in Bethlehem, had profaned the name of God by usurping to himself a mere citizen, and they applied to him the law of Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18.20. So Salvador contends that Jesus blasphemed by an extreme violation of Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. So remember, he's, he's a Jewish historian, so he's looking at it from their point of view. And Deuteronomy 13 says, chap, chapter uh, 13, verse 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and that sign or wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. You shall purge the evil from among you. 
It makes sense, historically and biblically, that Jesus would be condemned under that statute. Blasphemy was not only a verbal curse, cursing God or rejecting God or something, but, it, but an act of treason against God is a form of blasphemy, punishable by death, according to the law of Moses. So by claiming divine attributes and divine position and honors, Jesus would, in their minds, be taking God off of his throne and accruing to himself things that belong only to God. And if you read through the Gospels, you see that all the way through. That's a, that's a pretty constant theme that Jesus is getting trouble for doing things like that. I'm going to give you several examples. Luke chapter 5, verse 20 through 21 it says, seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins have forgiven, your, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, right away they saw that Jesus pronouncing somebody forgiven, which is God's prerogative, that's a blasphemous thing. So right away, this is early on in Jesus' ministry, they're thinking, this guy is way out of line, he's blaspheming. Let me take you to several places in John's gospel. John chapter 5, verse 16, it says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus. This is why. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father's working until now, and I myself am working. God works on the Sabbath, so I'm working on the Sabbath. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They got it. He's making himself equal with God. They wanted to kill him for that. That's blasphemy worthy of death in their mind. How about John 6, verse 40? Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? There again, there's, they're putting the pieces together from what he's saying. And they're saying, what's, what's he claiming here exactly? Here's one we mentioned last week, John chapter 8, verse uh, 56 through 59. Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid, hid himself and went out of the temple. Finally, let me point you to John chapter 10, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So this is a couple chapters later. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? There's a Jesus question. Why are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. These were all public events, public statements. Uh, plainly, many Jews regarded Jesus as a blasphemer, um, perilously close, if not actually claiming equality with God. That's why Caiaphas can ask the question that he did. Not that he was one of God's beloved children, but that he was the only begotten son of God, uniquely related to the father, and deserving honors due the only son of the father. 
That's why he's asking that question. Jesus worked as the Father did. Jesus came from heaven. Jesus should be honored even as the Father is honored. That's John chapter 5. That's blasphemy. Unless. It's blasphemy unless. One thing they failed to consider. And that's the what if. What if he was one with the Father? What if he was God? Didn't the prophet Isaiah say of the Messiah, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace? Shouldn't the most knowledgeable men in Israel have considered that text as a possibility? After all, Jesus claimed to be the theme of the Old Testament. Shouldn't that be considered? He claimed the I am. Shouldn't they consider that claim? He claimed to be the source of eternal life. He, he called on men to rest their souls in him. He suggested that he was David's Lord as well as David's son. He said it in so many different ways. Well, what if he really was? Nobody's asking that question. So the conclusion of this trial, verse 65, then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Verse 66, and they answered, he deserves death. So by the Deuteronomy 13 standard, if, he, if it wasn't true, he does deserve death. Then the brutality begins. Verse 67, then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? So he's supposed to be a prophet, so they cover his eyes. Mark tells us that they actually blindfolded him or covered his eyes, then punched him and slapped him. Who hit you? A real prophet would know. Get the joke there? Pow! Who hit you? He can't see. He's blindfolded. God talks to you, right? He can tell you who hit you. Slap. Who slapped you? What's the man's name? This is so illegal, uh, criminal, that they're treating him like that. A violation of their own code of justice. His trials aren't done yet. It's not settled yet. He's not convicted yet. The legal proceedings are not over. The council at this point has two problems. Night trials were illegal and capital crimes resulting in death were to be automatically retried the next day. That was a Jewish rule. Again, a fascinating part of a legal system that was designed to make sure nothing was decided on hastily or in the heat of the moment. So the council according to their own rules, were supposed to go home in small groups and then branch off into twos, go by twos. They were to go home, drink no intoxicating liquids, eat lightly, discuss with the other person they were with, pray, and reconsider every aspect of the trial that they had witnessed. Sleep on it, then come again to rehear the evidence of the witnesses the next day. That was supposed to always happen with a capital crime. Not beat the prisoner. And there's a lot of moral beauty in that system that they devised. I think maybe we should 
implement that with our system. You know, once you get the jury out there and they say their thing, it's done. But what if they, what if they were told to go home one more time and pray about it and come back together again after they've rendered their verdict and make sure they're right? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be a, a, an amazing system of justice to protect the accused? So Jesus' first trial ended about 3 a.m. His second trial started at 6 a.m. at the crack of dawn. So they didn't really have a chance to go home and pray and, you know, sleep on it and uh, come back the next day fresh to the whole thing. Um, they didn't have any time for a reflection. And in between trials, they were beating him up. And nobody stopped them. Nobody interfered or said it was wrong or excessive or anything like that. That was all illegal because he hadn't been convicted. Of course, Jesus accepts all of this. He doesn't complain. His hour has come. He knows it. This is why he came into the world, to endure whatever men wanted to do to him. And bear. he came to bear their sin as God applied the penalty of man's sin to him. That's why he came. So the second trial goes quickly. It's recorded in Luke chapter 22, verse 66 through 71. And it's much like the first trial. Um, Matthew only mentions it in passing in chapter 27, verse 1. This time, the whole Sanhedrin is present. It's their normal meeting place now to hear the testimony. And Luke gives us this. This is Luke 22:67. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, you are the Son of God then. And he said to them, yes, I am. Then they said, what further need do we have for testimony? We have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So, they have the full Sanhedrin there. It's in the right place. It is daytime now. There are some legal niceties being paid attention to. And he convicts himself. So they have their trial and retrial. And you know what I think regarding all of this? It, it, it makes me very sad that Jesus, the best, most wonderful, most innocent man, the most gentle man that ever lived, would be treated like this. But most of all, I think about the missed opportunity they had. Like many people today, these men missed the greatest opportunity that life affords to them to be reconciled to God through the Savior that he sent in Jesus. They could have welcomed him. They could have learned from him. They could have loved him. But they would not change. They would not change. They hated him. They hated him since he started his ministry because he exposed their hypocrisy. Right in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts in with that. And they hated him ever since that. They would not humble themselves in the presence of one who deserved their total admiration and devotion. They liked things the way they were. Rituals, rules, and privilege. They were a privileged, religiously privileged people. Spiritually privileged. God offered them the kingdom and they said, no, we don't want the kingdom you have to offer. And Caiaphas here, the high priest, really embodies that heart of darkness that characterizes the whole human race. He's not special. He's typical. He represents the rebel against God. 
the rebel that Jesus came to die for, to save. But Caiaphas remained a rebel. He had his opportunity and he missed it. Don't make that mistake. Don't make his mistake. Jesus is Lord today. He's going to come in power. Or when the shortness of life ushers you into his judgment seat before he comes, you're going to be facing him. You're going to stand before him. You're going to have to make an account for yourself. You will stand in judgment. And it will be too late to switch sides when you're there. So I can only urge you to embrace the Savior that God sent into the world, Jesus Christ, now. Do it today. And you can do that by confessing your sins, swearing allegiance to him as your king and Lord, and receiving the salvation that he offers, this forgiveness that he freely gives to you when you confess him as Lord. You do that through faith. You receive that forgiveness by simply believing. That's what you need to do. He came to save you, receive him, and that salvation belongs to you. So, in the gospel narrative, Caiaphas is working his evil plan to destroy Jesus. Now he's halfway there. All he needs now is an official okay from the government of Rome and the governor of Rome in Judea is Pontius Pilate. So we'll look at the Roman trials of Jesus next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a wonderful Savior. Dignified, gracious, gentle. Offering them an opportunity even in the midst of cruelty and the beatings he received. We thank you for his model, his example, his perfection that we can take comfort in, but most of all, that he was willing to endure all of this injustice for our salvation. We give you glory and praise and thanksgiving that you ordained history to be like this so we could know such a one. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, thank you. Next week, the Roman trials of Jesus.